0: There are some things that we love and know about, but our knowledge of those facts and things are enriched when we know a little bit about the background. For decades, you could say centuries, historians and researchers have wanted to know how the Egyptians went about building the pyramids. Everybody loves the pyramids as they are in their final edition, but people would love to know the background if we could just know how they went about doing it. It might enhance our appreciation of those things. You think about Martin Luther King's speech to those 250,000 on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It's a great speech, but it's enhanced when you realize that in the midst of the speech, King relies on and refers to the Gettysburg Address, the Emancipation Proclamation, our country's Declaration of Independence, Shakespeare, and the Bible. That background going into that speech just enhances the phrases and the words that are used. And the same thing's true about our lesson tonight. John chapter 17 is known and been been known in a beloved chapter for Bible students and New Testament Christians for centuries. But the background leading us up to John 17 will help us to greater appreciate the words that Jesus speaks and what's been called his high priestly prayer. Now, when you talk about the context of this prayer, what sets up the prayer that would be Jesus's in John 17, you could start back as far as the beginning of the book in John chapter one, where John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Or you could follow throughout the gospel of John, where John continues to use this reference concerning Jesus. His hour had not yet come. And then after the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus finally says that his hour had arrived. Scholars divide the book of John up into two great halves. John chapters one through 12 has been called the book of signs where Jesus does the miracles to prove that he is the Messiah. And then John chapter 13 through 21 has been called the book of glory where Jesus shows himself to be the Messiah and the glory that would eventually be his. Tonight, for our purposes, we're going to look simply at the context of Jesus's longest prayer from John chapter 13 into John chapter 16. And then Neil will come up and talk about the actual content of the prayer itself. You know the prayer and what Jesus says about unity, about his disciples and about sanctification. But I believe our appreciation for the words is greatly enhanced when we appreciate the context that led up to it. John chapters 13 through 17 has been called the farewell discourse, where in one night Jesus talks with his disciples about some of the greatest truths in the history of the world and about discipleship. And let's notice five of them that will help us to greater have a greater appreciation for the prayer we'll study in a moment in John chapter 17. The first one is in John chapter 13. Jesus in John 13 is preparing for the Passover meal with his disciples. And in verse one, John says, having been with his own which were in the world, he loved them until the end. Jesus gets up from supper takes off his outer garment, girds himself with a towel, puts water into a basin and begins to do the unthinkable. He begins to wash the feet of his disciples. This was viewed as such a menial task that not even Jewish slaves would do this in the ancient world. According to Leviticus 25 and verse 39, maybe sometimes wives and children, but maybe Gentile slaves. But never would you have a master washing the feet of his disciples. But Jesus is no ordinary master. And these disciples are no ordinary students. Jesus is driving home a doctrine, a teaching to them about Christian service. And when you drop down to verse 13, he tells them, he says, you call me teacher and Lord for so I am. But if I then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus was not on the verge of opening up disciples or us manicures and pedicures. He was teaching them a lesson about service and about going beneath what other people would typically do in order to be great in his eyes. It was more than knowing it, though. In verse 17, he says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. He wanted him to follow through and execute. The first thing we need to appreciate about the context of the prayer that Jesus would offer up in John chapter 17 is the preparation for service. As he was trying to get these men to see to be great in the eyes of God is to go beneath where other people won't go. For them, it was washing feet. But for us, it's probably something different It's to say to you and me, when we think about our role in Christianity, we should be saying to ourselves, not what will I do that will help me to be seen the most? But what can I do that will help me to serve the most? Galatians five and verse 13. You remember, Paul says that you've been given freedom and don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but by love, serve one another. And, you know, Second Corinthians 5:14 and 15, where Paul says the love of Christ constrains us because one died. That means all were dead, that those that live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and for their sake was raised from the dead. Jesus is taking these men by the hand who, though great students of his, were often far too concerned with their own importance. And in one last attempt, he's saying to them, I want you to be servants. I want you to bow low and do the work that nobody else would do, because in Christianity, the way up is down. The way to greatness is to do the servant job. Do the role that other people will overlook is to prepare your heart for service. Here's number two. The context of this prayer is based on the pivotal focus on love. Probably the most well-known statement that Jesus gives in this entire discourse is found in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another by this well, all men know you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. First time you read those words, anybody even casually familiar with the Old Testament should really be astonished by what Jesus is saying. Because, I mean, you read through the Old Testament and you know, even the Old Testament law taught Jewish people to love one another and love strangers. Leviticus 19:18, the Old Testament law taught that the man should love his neighbor like who? Like himself. So what does Jesus mean when he says a new commandment? What's new about it? People have been loving for a long time. What does Jesus mean by this love being new? It's not that nobody had ever loved before, but it is the case that nobody had ever loved as deeply and as sacrificially as Jesus had. And so underline in verse 34, as I have loved you, because that's the standard. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciples, you've got to learn how to love one another. Just like I have loved you. That's what's going to mark you out. Occasionally in the world, somebody gets famous and then everybody that has ever met this person wants to claim some allegiance. Maybe you've seen this before. They'll say, I know him. He grew up on my street or, of course, the most famous claim. He's my cousin. Right. (laughs) People say, I know this person." And you know what that won't fly. People say, hey, I need proof. I need a childhood photo. I need a text message, a phone number, some kind of proof. Imagine being Jesus's disciple in the first century. He ascends back up to heaven. And you say, I know him more than know him. I'm his disciple. You've got no photo. No text message, no private dialogue and communication. Jesus says the only thing you'll have that will prove that you really do know me is if you love in a way that people hadn't seen since I walked the earth. And so John 15, verse 12 and John 15 and verse 17, Jesus doubles down on this idea that my disciples will be known by the love they have for one another. No wonder he harps on this unity in John 17. It starts here where he says, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another just like I have loved you. What does Paul say in Romans 5 and verse 6? When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Christ is saying to the apostles before he ever prays this prayer. If you're going to be my disciples, you've got to be known for loving one another. It's amazing what Jesus says here and all that he could have said, but he didn't. He didn't say people will know you're my disciples by how much, you know, or about what you call yourselves or about all the acts of service you do in my name. And all of those things matter. But all of those things can be faith. All of those things can be hijacked by spiritual frauds and phonies, but not the love of Jesus. It's either absent or it's authentic. Once you see it, you can't miss it. And so he says, this is how people are going to know. You know, a person could have a car, nice paint job, nice shiny rims, the most up to date interior technology. Great reputation for good gas mileage and all of those things. But the reality is the car is going nowhere until you get some gas in it. Mm. And Jesus is saying to you and me, you might be impressive. You might be smart and educated and knowledgeable. But the truth is you're going nowhere until you get some love in you until you become my disciples. You'll never be able to get on with the mission that I've assigned you. Here's number three. It's the presence of the spirit. Jesus is leaving them physically, but he wants them to know that they still will have his presence. And so from John 14 through John 16, he mentions the comforter or the Holy Spirit several times. John 14 and verse 16, he says this Holy Spirit, when he comes, he'll be with you forever. John 14 and verse 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. John 15, 26, the Holy Spirit won't bear witness about himself. He'll bear witness about me. John 16 and verse eight, he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and the coming judgment. And then in John 16 and verse 13, Jesus says he'll guide you into all the truth. What Jesus is going to call for the apostles to do as Neil's going to explain to us in a moment from John 17 almost seems like a monumental task. How could they do this work? It's a challenging prayer, but not when they have the divine presence with them throughout their entire earthly sojourn and their journey. There is no version of Christianity that will ever be successful that doesn't include the triune God, a father, son and Holy Spirit. And we need to appreciate that without God, you can't do divine work without divine aid. And so Jesus says, I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit. In fact, he told his disciples, don't you move a muscle. Don't you leave Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And then and only then can you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But you need the Holy Spirit. We spend a lot of our time talking about what he does, but this is what I know. Jesus was not saying to the apostles, hey, I'm going to send you along a little buddy in my absence. And every now and again, when you need it, he'll give you a little jolt of energy just to kind of keep you up and keep you going. He's saying, I'm sending you the presence of the sovereign spirit of God, and he'll be with you to accomplish the work. Whether you feel anything or think anything, God's presence will be with you. His spirit will guide you. And when we open up our New Testament, we read the spirit's words, but he animates our lives when we actually take these words into our heart and live as if we believe them and we're transformed by them. Before he ever prays a word, he says, remember the presence of the spirit that will be with you. Here's number four. There is the place of eternal rest secured. You know, this passage, John 14, after Jesus has told Peter in 13, you'll deny me. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. Jesus wants these men to know as I'm about to depart from you. This is not bad news, but it's good news. Jesus's death shouldn't cause them to tremble, but instead to trust his death meant great news for them. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I am divine. He says in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going in order for your benefit to prepare a place for you. Jesus is going. So one day we can go with him and be with him where God is, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But don't misread this text. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, it doesn't mean that Jesus went to build enough heavenly bunks to house the brethren. He already tells you in verse two that in his father's house are many rooms. He's not up in heaven pulling the heavenly permits and nailing things up so that he can have enough place to put us. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, that is the preparation. Jesus is saying, I'm going to make a way for you where there wasn't one before so that when you and I show up at the heavenly resort upon check in. There won't be any amount requested for our blood, for our blunders or our burdens. He really did pay it all. That is the preparation. When Jesus goes to the cross, that's his preparing a way so that we can follow him and go where he went. First John two, one and two says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And his blood is the atonement or the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only. But also for the sins of the whole world. John 1 through three is one of those passages that I memorized early on. Probably you've heard this, too. And I've heard these verses most often at funerals and for good reason. People have lost the dearest on earth to them and they need to know they want to know that the grave is really not the end and that Jesus did go to prepare a place. And that's great. And I think it should be used that way. But these words are as much about life as they are about death. The apostles aren't staring death in the face. Jesus is. And as he's about to go to the cross and depart from them physically, he says, I want you to know you can get on with your earthly work down here because your heavenly reward is already secured over there. And before he prays the words of John 17, he says, I want you to know your eternal place of eternal security. It's already secured with me. Your citizenship is in heaven from where also you look for your savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come back and redeem your body and make it like his glorious body. Philippians three, 20 and 21. And here's the last one before we look at the actual content of the prayer, and that is the promise of overcoming right before Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven in John 17 and prays, He tells his disciples, yes, I've got everything prepared for you. And yes, you need to be servants. The Holy Spirit is going to be with you. There's a place of eternal rest secure. But John 16:33 is reality. I've spoken these words to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus wanted his disciples to know they were going to have to work out their earthly salvation in a very dark world. But that was no excuse to let that darkness overwhelm them and get in them. Because the one who's great in us is greater than the one in the world. First John four and verse four. And so Jesus says, no matter what you can still overcome, no matter what you face in the world, you will have tribulation. But I've given you my peace and I've overcome the world. And that means you can, too. Jesus was telling them it will be difficult to follow me. But I've overcome on your behalf. It's as if spirituality is a track meet, a race. And Jesus has run all the laps. And just about the time he gets on the podium to receive a gold medal in a way we can't describe or explain, we find ourselves up there as well being crowned and adorned with the medal that we haven't earned. We're not even out of breath. And Jesus says, because I've overcome, you have. Mac Melitzer was in the news recently and a few years ago, he was homeless in Utah pushing a, a buggy. That wasn't always his lot, but his wife died a few years before and two of his best friends in a car crash and Max had just about given up on life. They hired a private investigator to find him because his brother, who was a plant worker for General Electric, had died and left him $100,000. Now, listen, that's not a lot of money to most people, but it would have changed his life. He didn't deserve to be on the street. That wasn't the life he had been living before, but he fell on bad times. The private investigators found him. Max agreed to meet his cousin at the bus station and to receive the inheritance, which was rightfully his. They arranged the day. The only problem was when it was time to receive the inheritance. Max never showed. We don't know why he didn't show nobody ever found him. They don't know what's happened to him. But the reality is he lived below his earthly privileges. He didn't have to. Jesus is saying riches are yours. Receive them. Don't miss out. I've got great things in store for you. I've overcome. and You can as well. We're familiar with John 17. We know these words. But the background and the context of what's going on with Jesus on his knees, praying and on his feet, preaching, serving these men right before he prays these rich words, hopefully deepens our appreciation for what we're about to find out as we study the actual content of the prayer in John 17. Neil, come and preach to us. Well, we come
1: to the prayer and of all the things that we might see in this prayer, I want us to focus on what seems to be at the heart and the center of it all. And that's unity. In McGuffey's third reader, there is a story told about a man and his seven sons. They were constantly quarreling and bickering. The man had vast properties that he wanted to leave to them, and yet there were enemies that wanted to take that property from them. So the father tried to impress on them the importance of what they were facing. And so he took a bundle of seven sticks and he tied them together, and he called all of his sons to him. And he said, I will give a great sum of money to any son who can break this bundle of sticks. Starting with the eldest and all the way down to the youngest, they tried, they applied their force, and yet none of them could break that bundle of sticks. The father said, and yet nothing could be more simple. And he untied that bundle and he took those sticks one by one and he broke them and he threw them down. And he said, so it is with you, my sons, when you're together... There is no force that can break you apart. But if you'll allow yourself to be fractured and divided, you'll be like these sticks upon the ground. How vividly that illustrates the importance that there is for us to be one as the children of God. Jesus is so concerned about our unity that this is what He chooses to put at the heart of His prayer in that well-known and well-traveled prayer of John chapter 17. You know, our body needs B vitamins, and there are a lot of different types. There's uh, thiamine, and there's niacin, and there's B6, and there's B12, and it does the body cells so much good. When we look at the uh, B vitamins, they are vitamins that help our nerves, and that help our physical body, and even help our memory and our mental health. They say that you get your B vitamins from eating meat, but most of us take B vitamin supplements to make sure that we have a sufficient amount. But when it comes to the body of Christ, we need to be one. We need to be united. And that's what Jesus is concerned about. He has gone away from His disciples and He is alone with His Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And He prays. You ever thought about the fact that we place a great deal of stock in the outcome of a prayer based on who is praying for it or against it? Maybe we go to the doctors and we find them saying to us we've done everything that we can do. And so what we'll do is we'll go and we'll kneel and pray or we'll find somebody that we completely trust and we'll ask them to pray about it. Isn't that the import and the power of passages like James chapter 5 and verse 16 where we not only confess our faults to one another but we pray one for another that we may be healed? The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man does so much good. When we look at what Jesus is saying in this prayer, we could focus on the negative side of this, and we can ask ourselves, why is religious division so prevalent in our world today? But instead, I want us to look at what Jesus prays about. When we think about how much confidence we can have in the prayers of Jesus, it takes it to the next level. Jesus prayed about religious unity as if it were possible. And if he prayed in that way, we should have confidence that it is. And so as we look at the contents of this prayer, I want us to think in terms of it being about our unity. And as we look at the unity that God wants through Christ's prayer, I want us to consider or remember four words. These four words are ingredients that can help us to appreciate the unity that Jesus prayed for just moments before he died on the cross. Will you remember, first of all, the word cost? The word cost. You know, we often attach the value of something based on the the price that was paid for it. And the greater the price paid, the greater the value it is that we perceive. But what Jesus is saying is that He is paying the price of His life so that we might have life and all of us have it on the same terms. With Jesus comprehending the cost that it was going to be for him, how immeasurable it is for us to imagine that only the deity could realize that he was born to die such a painful death that he could live his life day by day knowing that that was how it was going to come to an end. Only deity could bear that. When we think about Jesus and the cost that he was going to pay, we see how precious unity is and we see that Jesus was willing to pay that price. We can see the cost of unity for Jesus in the anxiousness that he felt about his imminent suffering. Do you notice how he begins the prayer in verse 1? He says that the hour is come. You know, Hiram talks about that in the prelude to this prayer, that there was an hour that Jesus was anticipating it was coming. And near the end of his public ministry, he talks about how troubled he was. But what shall I pray to my Father that I be delivered from this hour? For for this hour I have come. In John 12, verse 32 and 33, he says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said, indicating what manner of death he would die. The Apostle Paul uh, was one who gave evidence and proof that the Christ had to suffer. Acts chapter 17 and verse 3. And so this theme permeates the epistles. You'll see the Hebrews writer saying that Christ had to suffer. Hebrews 2.18, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. You'll see that he tells us that Jesus was on his way. He's just hours from there where he's going to go outside the city gates. He's going to be hung at Calvary. Outside the gate, Hebrews 13 and verse 12. Peter's going to take up that theme of suffering. And he's going to say to us that he suffered for you. 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. He suffered in the flesh. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. When we consider all that is said, surely unity was part of the joy that was set before Jesus in his anticipation of the suffering that was ahead for him. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. When we look at Jesus' prayer as he prays, he is implying that this suffering is going to lead to our life. John 17 and verse 2. He's been saying that your freedom, your liberty, your life is going to require me to die. John 3.16, John 10 and verse 11. And so as we look at Jesus in His prayer about unity, He understood that it was costly, that in mere moments He was going to be arrested and then He was going to be tortured and then He was going to lose His life. But He was willing to pay that cost so that we all could be one. But that, that unity was costly, Jesus indicates in His prayer, in that He was prepared to finish the work that the Father had given Him to do. Jesus anticipates this at the beginning of the prayer. He could say with confidence, even before he says it on the cross, I've finished it. I've come to the end. All that remains is to go through that awful experience. But think about what he had been through in the name of unity up to this point. Jesus had endured the interminable suffering of temptation that we mentioned just in the last Sunday sermon in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. Jesus endured hardship. In Luke 9, 58, he says that that birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. In John chapter 7 and verse 1, Jesus faced death's threats. In John chapter 8 and verse 6, Jesus faced accusations. In John chapter 11 and verse 58, Jesus faces interference. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, somewhat natural enemies, conspired together to see if there was some way that they could trap Jesus in his words, Matthew 22 and verse 15. Man, look at all the passages like Matthew 4 and 24 and Matthew 14, 13 that talks about what Jesus did day after day in giving himself up to heal the diseases, the infirmities and the problems of this world. Why did he do it? He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus was willing to pay the the price. And as He prays that prayer in the garden, He is desirous of us to understand that with such a price paid, that we should be willing to pay the cost that it takes on our end to maintain unity. Unity is going to be very difficult religiously. Because people have their own ideas and we come face to face with that. We're somewhat confronted with that and we've got to stay true to what Jesus has said in his word. And so yet we figure out that whatever minuscule price we pay, he has demonstrated some, such magnificent love already. We realize that he paid first and he paid most because of his great love for us. And in view of that great sacrifice that he made, there's a cost that you and I have got to be willing to pay. Jesus talks about it later on in the prayer. He says that to be united with him, to follow what he says, to be one with him, we may face the hatred of this world. John 17 and verse 14. That includes the religious world. We may find that when we stand for what God's word says, that those who would like to capitulate or to bow to the culture are not going to like us for that. Then we may have to face isolation from this world. John 17 and verse 16. We may find ourselves alone. We may find ourselves in some doctrinal matter, some matter of worship, some matter of salvation by ourselves and yet our price that we pay is so that others may come and learn of what Jesus has said in His Word so that they may be one with the Father even as we are. We may also have to face with regard to the world their unfair accusations, chapters 17 and verse 25. But what Jesus would say in His example and His prayer in the garden is in view of what I have paid, the cost that I've paid, all of us to be faithful to Him and obedient to Him should be willing to pay that cost for unity and truth. So, will you remember the first word, the word cost? But, second, will you remember the word comprehension? The, a very important word in John chapter 17 is the word know. You'll find Jesus talking about how th- that He had known the will of the Father. How, and that's verse 3, in verse 7, he was so thankful that the disciples had known his word. In verse 8, they knew Jesus better because they knew that word. And what Jesus wants at the end of his prayer is for the rest of the world to know who he is, that he is Lord and Savior, and he's counting on us to help them to know it, verse 23 and verse 25. When you think about how important knowledge is in this prayer, he wants us to comprehend First, he wanted the apostles to continue to understand and to know. But he also wants us to know. And then he wants the world to know. We must know God. Verse 3 and verse 5. He was thankful that his apostles had indeed known that. But what happens when we truly know God? When we know him as he truly is? If everybody knew God as he is revealed on the pages of New Testament, would we not have universal unity? Would we not all worship Him in the same way? Would we not all serve Him in the same way? If we were uh, bowing in obedience and in understanding of a knowledge of the God of the Bible, would we not have fellowship with those that God has fellowship with, all that He has fellowship with, and only those that He has fellowship with? Then in verse 7, we see that we must know God's revelation. And again, He says that these disciples had known that. I think that most of the religious world would, likes the idea of unity, or at least we like the idea of getting along. But it's only the disciplined student of the Bible who is going to strive to do what and only what the Word of God says, adding nothing to it or taking away from it. That's knowing God's revelation. We must also know God's purpose. In verse 25, Jesus laments that the world had not known Him. But he was thankful that the disciples did know him. He's longing for us to make sure that we know him. Most of this world does not know why God sent his son in the world in the first place. And he wants us to share that purpose. He sent us on a mission to help all in the world to know him and his purpose for them. You know, I thought about this this past week when Hurricane Idalia made landfall and came through every time a major hurricane strikes the the country. We have all of these advanced warnings and there are mandatory evacuations. And what we're trying to do is to get people out of harm's way. And the reason being is we remember the Katrina's. If you can go all the way back to Galveston, Texas, you can see the havoc that a hurricane can wreck. And so we want to do all that we can to stay away from that kind of destruction And in the world of media and technology that we have today, it's so easy for that to be brought into vivid color right before our eyes. Man, look at the destructive force of nature as it destroys buildings and houses. And even if we see it in some unedited sense of bodies, but what God is trying to get across to us through this prayer of Jesus is that He came on a mission to save us from eternal destruction, 2 Peter chapter 2, and verse 9. And if we know Him and we know His revelation and we know His purpose, then we're really going to strive to help people to be one with Him even as He and the Father are one. Will you remember the word comprehension of truly knowing Him? But then will you remember the word confidence? I don't know if there's an exception to this. Maybe there is. But it's hard for me to look in the Bible and find any commandment that God gives us, but that there are not blessings, privileges, and joys that are attached to doing them. When you think about what Jesus is praying for here in the garden, He is demonstrating to us the value of what He's praying about and what happens when we go through that difficult work, that costly work of trying to be one even as the Father and the Son were one. Look at the advantages and the joys that are felt in the congregation. I truly believe that Lehman Avenue has been enjoying for a while an extended period of unity and peace. You know what happens when that kind of environment exists? People want to come and be a part of a group like that that makes them open to studying God's Word. When they see the close and loving relationships as Hiram emphasized in John 13, 34 and 35, that Jesus emphasized as the hallmark of disciples, they're going to see that among a people who are united. And so as Jesus is praying, it should instill confidence in us. And he gives us some of the reasons why. We have confidence because of intercession. In verse 9, Jesus says that he is praying for them. As Jesus says this, he is praying, speaking both inclusively, that he is interceding for his disciples, but exclusively he is not interceding for the disobedient of this world. And now that Jesus has returned to heaven, this is a concept, an idea that we'll find in Scripture, that he intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, that he is our one mediator. As we see in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, he is the one who represents us and atones for us and reconciles us to God as we repent and confess. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 2. Then there's the confidence of preservation. He says, I have kept them through your word. Verse 11. I have confidence in knowing that as I partner with Jesus in this prayer that the Lord is keeping me. But then there's the confidence of sanctification. In verse 17, we're purified, but we're purified only through truth. And then there's the confidence of glorification. In verse 22, he is talking about the glory that he wanted his disciples to have in the obedience of that command. But it also is a reflection of God's glory. And here the idea is of dignity. It's of honor. We glorify it. Jesus, as we try to partner with Him in the answer to that prayer, Jesus is seeing that as Jesus is about to face His suffering. He has given us a wonderful name. Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in this name, let him glorify God. When we think about the glorification, that is an indication in that same letter that even the worst of sinners with the worst of their opposition may be won as they continue to look at our holy lives, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and verse 16. This is a difficult prayer if we really understand what Jesus is saying. He is saying that people with all their various uh, temperaments, personalities, opinions, and, and, and their thoughts about the way things should be, that He expects us to come together, and when we do under the banner of His authority, we can have this great confidence of a multitude of blessings that follow. Will you remember the word confidence? And finally, will you remember the word commission? We see Jesus saying in the middle of this prayer that I have, just as you have sent me, I have sent them. We have been sent, just as surely as the Father sent the Son into this world, He has sent us, and so we're to be mission-minded. He has sent us to be salt. To be a preservative in this world, Matthew 5, 13. He has sent us to be light, to dispel the darkness of this world, Matthew 5 and verse 14. He has sent us to be ambassadors so as to reconcile the world to Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. He has sent us to be an example, just as we saw in John 13, verse 12 through verse 17, that the world can see the Savior through the service that we render. We've been sent. We have been sent by Christ. And we remind ourselves that the Christ who sent us is the one who has all authority. He sends us preaching and he sends us to make disciples. And he has sent us into this world. Second Timothy 2 and verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, The things that you have heard of me and seen of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who may able to be able uh, to teach others also. We have been sent into this world to those who are searching into the religious world, into the broader world so that we can help Jesus' prayer not come to an end but to continue through the work that we do. Again, as you look at Jesus, there's a shift in the way that he speaks. Throughout the first part of the book of John, as has been noted already, Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. There's the wedding feast at Cana. And he says to Mary in John 2 and verse 4, Woman, my hour has not yet come. To his own brothers at the Feast of Booths, they want him to come to Jerusalem. He's not going to do things on their turn because he says, John 7 and verse 1, that my hour is not yet come. There are two different occasions in John 7 and verse 30 and John 8 and verse 20 where John tells us that there were enemies who were trying to seize him or even put him to death, but they were not successful because his hour had not come. But now that he's come back into Jerusalem and he has triumphantly entered into the city, in John 12 and verse 27, he would say, my hour has come. Jesus has anticipated the very reason that he came to this earth is what's on his mind, is what's on his heart, is what's on his lips as he is praying this great prayer in John chapter 17. We've looked at it one way. We have looked at some words that we can associate with this. But I want us to see this prayer in its overview as we close. First of all, Jesus prayed about Himself and His Father. It's where it should all begin. Jesus, as He is one with His Father, verse 1-5, through is buoyed up. He is strengthened by this relationship that He has with His Father in this hour of trial. As Luke describes it for us, in Jesus falling prostrate on the ground, how difficult it is for Him to face this moment. He leans on this relationship and the unity that he had with his father. And then he prayed about himself and his followers. And in this part of the prayer, there had to be a lot of memories, the ups and the downs, the triumphs and the failures. He has come and he has started the mission, but now he's passing it on to them, these apostles and those that they would teach. But then he prays about his followers and the world. We see that in verse 13 through 19 where Jesus is praying about the opposition that his apostles were going to face at the hands of the world. As they understood their purpose and their identity, the world wasn't going to like it. But he ends the prayer by praying about his followers and the Father. In verse 20 through 26, this is the part that brings it home to you and me. This is a transcendent, timeless part of the prayer. If you can imagine Jesus standing in the dark and the gloom of the Mount of Olives and as he's looking with the eye of faith over that valley to another hill, Mount Calvary, where he knew that he would die the next day. Jesus is looking past that band of disciples that he had been serving and, and mentoring and leading. And he is looking all the way across time at you and me. Jesus prays for us in the climax of that prayer and what does he pray? he prays that we would have hearts of faith John chapter 17 and verse 20 He prays that we all who would claim that Jesus is Lord would be one as even as he and the father are one verse 21 through 23. He prays that we would see with spiritual eyes, verse 24, and He prays, verse 25 and 26, that we would comprehend and then we would reflect His love to the world. I don't know about you, but it's a humbling thing to think that Jesus is looking at you and me through tear-stained eyes as He is about to go and lose His life on the cross, John chapter 10 and verse 18. As I look at the contents of the prayer, yes, there is the what of it. That he prayed for unity. But there's the why of the prayer as well. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. That may seem impossible as we sit here tonight, just a small portion of this world. And yet, Jesus saw it as a possibility. And the beautiful thing is that he doesn't expect us to win all the world at once. In fact, he lets us know that despite our efforts, that most of the world is not going to buy into what it is that he prayed about before he died. But the way that that happens is one person at a time. It begins with one person grasping and having their hearts penetrated by the prayer that Jesus prayed. And it begins with that person being one with Jesus and the Father. That's the beauty of the plan of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says that we will all stand before the judgment scene of Christ. But that same passage says each one of us will give an account. And while the whole world may not follow Jesus, every individual that does, as he stands and gives an account, with the blood of Christ having covered his sins, will hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joys of your Lord. Religious unity begins with you and me and our relationship with God. If you've not yet been one with Christ by being obedient to His gospel, you can respond to His great grace. We talked about God's part this morning. Our part is faith, a faith that saves is a faith that obeys, that allows our heart to be touched by the gospel, by the power of the Savior and the lordship of our lives that He would take, by changing our minds that leads to a change of actions, that leads us to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, allowing ourselves to be lowered in water, to be buried with Him in baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life. That will make you one with Christ and one with all those who have done that very thing. That oneness with Christ is something that's continued. When Jesus prays, He doesn't pray for preservation of physical life because we know that it's appointed unto men once to die. It's not a prayer about the preservation of those who turn away from the light. 1 John 1 and verse 6. It is a preservation of those who continue to walk in it. But if we fail to continue to walk in the light, we can come back. We can be restored. The invitation song that Chase is going to lead in just a moment is to encourage us if the need is for us to respond to Jesus' invitation in view of the great price he paid at Calvary and the prayer that he prayed. If you're subject to this invitation, won't you come?